Uh, I was told in first grade I would never be able to read, never be able to write, probably not very communicate very well, probably not go very far in life or never amount to anything. Okay. Well, later on, I ended up uh, reading now 30,500 books, writing probably, a, you know, 300 plus books now and uh, traveling 20 million miles. I'm really into financial independence many times over. And uh, I've communicated with uh, billions of people. So the, what they've told me I was not destined to do or not able to do became the very thing I was blessed to be able to do. Hey folks, Jason Witten here, your host of the Wealth Faculty Podcast. And today I had an absolute mind-blowing treat. Got a chance to sit down with Dr. John Demartini, uh, an absolute legend in the world of philosophy, learning, teaching, human performance. Um, what, a, what an amazing conversation we had today. I certainly had uh, my work cut out for me keeping up with Dr. Demartini's concepts and teachings and learnings in the moment when we were talking today. He is commonly known um, as one of the, the world's most influential uh, masters of uh, human behavior, a human behavior specialist, and uh, he uh, is famous for studying over 270 ologies uh, around the world from different cultures, different places, and I got a chance to ask him some pretty cool questions today. Some of his background, mind-blowing. If you haven't uh, heard of Dr. John Demartini, uh, take some time, do yourself a favor, get to know him. He left school at age 14, nearly died at age 17. He met a guy called Paul Braggs, which changed the direction of his life. He had some extreme learning difficulties when he was a child, dyslexia, some physical uh, challenges also overcame those. Um, and um, these days he travels, well, before COVID anyway, traveled uh, nearly every day of the year, over 50 countries uh, in a year where he, where he shares his research and his findings. Um, he's written over 40 books, 50 CDs and audio DVDs, he was featured in The Secret um, uh, and many other very infamous, famous, whichever way you want to slice this, um, uh, videos and other uh, teachings and learnings that we've all probably been exposed to at one point. And he presents this program called The Breakthrough Experience. And uh, I've certainly gone through it with my partner, my wife, Shay, and it's been amazing. So uh, listen, have a great time today. I enjoyed catching up with Dr. John Martini and asking him some questions and trying to keep up with his answers. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation and chat. If you want to track him down, uh, the three W's, drdmartini.com, his breakthrough experience is on in May the 1st this year, 2021, online, so track that down. But uh, uh, once again, I hope you enjoy this chat that I had with Dr. John Demartini today on The Wealth Faculty. Take care. Dr. Demartini, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. I know um, uh, I've attended many of your programs and seminars and consumed much of your material over the last 20 or 30 years for myself. And one of those big values that you always talked about is the value of travel was one of your driving uh, things that you love to do this year, not much travel going on. Um, how you been handling the lockdown and, <laughs> and, and, and that for you? I, um, I broke last March, the 20 million mile mark. 
Wow. And I landed from Tokyo into Los Angeles. And um, then we hit lockdown, or whatever you call it, where they started curtailing certain activities. And I was blessed to go from there just a couple of days later into Houston, where my children are living. So I was blessed to get to Houston. And I've been here in Houston, uh, staying here. They, there's a hotel here that was, you know, all the hotels were shut down. But this one hotel had done business with me and they let me stay here. So I had for two plus months, a complete hotel to myself. <laughs> and they took care of me here and they still taking care of me. And um, it's just been fantastic. So I can't complain. I got my own driver, my own cook, my own everything. So that's, uh, uh, but I don't, I'm not driving. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't driven in 30 years and I've not been flying. So I've been zooming and I have done a lot of miles on zoom since last March. <laughs> I think that uh, has been the theme for the whole world to learn a new skill and that sort of thing. Uh, is is that something that uh, has been a bit of a benefit for you, seeing your children maybe for, uh, a lot more for the first time in a long time? Well, it's a benefit to me. I don't know about them. I'd have to ask them. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been actually quite lovely because they're close by. I'm literally walking distance from all three of them. And uh, so... And my office is just like two to three blocks from here. Everything is really within walking distance. So yeah, definitely have had a great interaction with the, the children. They're all grown up now. They're 36, 33, and 30. Yeah. Uh, one's about to have a grand, we're about to have a grandchild. So there's, there's, uh, but there's definitely been more interaction there. And they've been in a lot of the programs with me and helped me with a lot of the programs. So I can't complain. There's, you know, there's, Every crisis has a blessing. Every challenge has an opportunity. There's always two sides to it. And if we see both sides and we're mindful, we're grateful. Yes. And I can say that I'm grateful for when I got to travel and now when I'm getting to travel by Zoom. Either way, I win. That's the way I look at it. That's a great way to say. I mean, you've, you've uh, uh, at the moment called or referred to COVID as Saint COVID for, for yourself, maybe and a lot of people. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that pushes a few buttons potentially for, for those who m might not be seeing it that way. You know, why do you call it St. COVID? It, it, for me, I've had an amazing experience personally, probably very similar to yourself. I've, I'm very grateful right now for how COVID has changed the trajectory of my business, my life and my family. Um, could you speak to, to that for a little bit? Because I, I know that potentially victim thinking and other things about this might be prevalent for a lot of people. Well, if, if you choose to be conscious of the downsides and not conscious of the upsides, that's a choice. Mm. That's because you chose not to look at the upsides, not look for them. And the same thing in reverse. <clears throat> you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven, as Milton said. And William James said that the greatest discovery of his generations of human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. So I don't see it as, a, a, you know, a terrible thing. I see it as an event. And now the question is, is what can we do with this event? Now, right when it happened, the first week <clears throat> and the first month, I sent out a letter to my students around the world and I asked them to make a list consciously of all the upsides, all the benefits that are happening and keep them coming and sending them in. And we got 17,000 upsides. And, um, they're pretty astounding. I mean, 
closer to the family, figuring out they can do business online, there's getting innovation, <clears throat> not having to drive, less pollution. I mean, it just went on and on and on. So I could easily see that there was death and life and transformations. So I, I, I'm the kind of guy that says, okay, the things we can control, we, we control them. The things we can't, we honor them. And we find out how they serve us and we use them to our greatest advantage. So I'm a firm believer that we can call this whatever you want. I can call it St. COVID or I can call it Sinner COVID. <clears throat> but I prefer to just call it St. COVID because frankly, um, there's great blessings that are also there if we take the time to look. And, and if we count our blessings and count the upsides to it, we're definitely more resourceful than if we're sitting there becoming victims of our history and not masters of our destiny. Mm. Many people are upset because they're comparing their current reality to a fantasy about how it was or a fantasy about how it's supposed to be instead of actually getting grounded in what's actually occurring factually and then asking how specifically is this factual situation? How is it helping us get what we're striving for in our life? And if you answer that and don't give up on that answer, you will use it as a catalyst to do something great. And I've done my best to share that, you know, approach to thinking on every medium. We reached 250 million people last year, just in 2020, since COVID started wow. with that idea. And the thank you letters by the tens of thousands have been very, very, uh, you know, saying that it's helped them see things from a new light and get them it's almost like Viktor Frankl in a concentration camp. Yes. You know, the, the, the people that were comparing their current reality to how it used to be and how they fantasize about it didn't make it. But the people that asked, okay, this is the fact. How do we use it now? And became resourceful. They survived. And the same thing today. So we, we get creative and innovative when we're challenged. And we, I think there's lots of stories of great innovations and great opportunities that have come out of it. Yep. And I remember one of the very impactful things that you shared with some of your trainings is that that tool where it's like a, a list on the positive, a list on the negative. You can't have one without the other. They tend to have the ability to balance each other out and, and bring you into a neutral space. It in in your 250 million reach around the world, you know, like the idea that we as humans need to make some meaning, good or bad, out of things. You know, is that something we're born with? Like we pop out and say, right, let's make meaning of everything around here. Is it, or is it something we can learn e even if we don't have that muscle right now to sort of, like you say, make a better meaning or, or analyze it with a bit more fact and less emotion? Well, <clears throat> Albert Camus said that uh, there's no meaning in the universe, no universal meaning. And philosophers have debated that for, for centuries. And we, there's no universal value nor universal meaning that have ever been dis discerned. There's been people with opinions about it, but nothing that's objective. Mm. But there is individual meaning. And we can create and extract out of our experiences deep meaning. And what's interesting, the word meaning comes from the mean. Aristotle talked about the mean. He talked about the golden mean the Fibonacci series of numbers that rose above and below 0.618 in its progression from one number to the next. And just like the stock market, if it goes above equilibrium, forces bring it back down to the mean. And if it goes below equilibrium, it goes back up to a mean. It oscillates around a moving mean. So extracting meaning out of experiences 
is using your intuition to become cognizant of the unconscious information that's before you that you're overlooking. In other words, when you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upsides and blind to the downsides, unconscious and ignorant of the downsides. And we've all had a fatal attraction probably like Mike, Michael Douglas who playing close. <clears throat> woke up with a psycho next to us. We've also had moments where we resented somebody and we're conscious of the downsides and unconscious of the upsides. Well, when we're conscious of the upsides and we're infatuated, we've got a little whispering voice inside called our intuition trying to say, too good to be true, keep your eyes open. Most women know this immediately if you're saying, say, say that to me. And the same thing if all of a sudden you've been through a real crazy situation with a crazy man or man or woman, your intuition is saying there's gotta be a purpose and meaning to this. Why is this happening? So we have a built-in homeostatic negative feedback loop, you might say, inside our psyche to balance out our brain chemistry, our brain electronics, and to extract out the mean out of either of the polarities of our misperceptions, our subjective biases that we project onto the world. And so mindfulness is when you actually put the two together. When you're conscious and unconscious are put together at the same time and you see both sides, you're mindful, you're fully conscious. And meaning and inspiration and mindfulness and equanimity or objectivity are really synonymous. So I think we have a built-in homeostatic, psychological and neurochemical, neuroelectronic system striving for that innately within each individual but because each individual has a different set of values compared to another individual, collecting there is no universal one, but the summation of all of our value systems could be complementations of opposites, as Heraclitus said. Mm -hmm. And uh, Parmenides said, if you take those two sides and put them together and extract meaning out of it, you have love. And Plato said, it seems like the whole thing is for the sake of love. <clears throat> In your work, you say that values drive your voids and, you know, talking about love, you know, sort of, you know, if you don't have it, you're chasing it. If you do have it, you're looking over the fence potentially at something more exciting, you know, um, or, you know, those versions of um, people's values around the world ultimately boil down to some very similar things is, uh, I remember you saying, you know, love well, being I, a major one. <laughs> I, I've been blessed to travel a bit. I've spoken in 154 countries. And uh, as a result of that, I've gotten to meet people from different cultures. Mm. And it's interesting, regardless of what culture I've been in, whether it's in a, an Arabian culture or Kazakhstan or India or Sri Lanka or the Micronesia or Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, it doesn't matter where I am, any of the European countries, African countries, most people do have a desire to uh, procreate, have a family, um, have somebody have love and intimacy, want to grow their knowledge, want to have some sort of fair exchange with people, want to have, uh, you know, some sort of prosperity enough where they're not always, always in survival. They want to have social influence. They want to have love and intimacy. They want to have physical wealth, well-being and vitality. And they also want to be inspired. That's universal. And, and there may be differences of marriage structures and family structures and social structures, but that's still pretty consistent. And I, I think it's wiser to concentrate on the similarities than on the differences in culture. If you do, you can, you can have dialogue. 
If not, you have alternating monologues. <clears throat> and do you see that, like, in, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you, like, do you see the role of social media, the connectivity of the world, you know, enhancing that in a good way or, you know, in a negative way? It, it's almost putting, you know, a, a choice or a, you know, bad or good on that right now. But do you see the role or the enhancement of that being able to, you know, add value to the future if we do that right? Well, social media is neutral. Mm. It's neither good nor evil. You know, it's how we use it. Yeah. You know, I, I try my best to, you know, put information on social media that is assist people in mastering their lives. So I do my best to do that. And I'm sure there's some people that don't like what I have to share. That's, that's inevitable, but I think overall that's contributive, but there's also misinformation being used. And it, it's each of us as a responsible individual to either live by foresight and mitigate the bio, the, the bio, biases that we have and see things objectively or to be trapped with misinformation and subjective polarization and uh, you know, you react. If we react, we're gonna have impulses towards or instincts away, and we're gonna be booming or glooming. And I, and I think that you know, that which circulates the most usually has the least value. So dig deeper and go to find whatever complementary opposite is and find both sides of, a, of an opinions so you can put the opinions together like a dialectic and come out with something that's more of a synthesis and objective. If you do, the social media can be useful because you can find all that on there. Yeah. Mark Penn, Mark Penn wrote a book called uh, Microtrends and showed that everything that's on the internet is counterbalanced by its opposite on the internet. So you can find data pro this, anti this, if you look, but if you only see one side with your own bias, then the social media is just going to accentuate your bias. And you see that quite often with the highly polarized sensationalism that you get, but that's not wisdom. That's, that's uh, survival thinking and not thrival. Yeah. And your, um, your significant um, studies in the last 30, 40 years and, and even longer, um, you know, the ability for you to sort of find some knowledge and uh, synthesize that into some of the learnings that you, you teach people, you know, where would you encourage, you know, those now starting to sort of hear some of your wisdom and say, well, maybe there's something in this. Where would I start? I mean, you know, observing the the, the pictures behind you, the, the whole library there. I mean, I, I in my head, I'm thinking of your mind like a massive library like that. You've had so much information absorption. Where would someone start right now if you're talking to someone in their, in the beginnings of this consciousness? Where would I start? <clears throat> There's a lovely two volume, initial two volumes of a series of books by Britannica uh, called The Great Ideas, The Great Books of the Western World. And in there is Syntopic and Volumes One and Two, the first two books. And it's a synthesis of the greatest ideas promulgated by the greatest minds that lived over the last 2,700 years, starting with Thales, the Greek philosopher, all the way to what we have today, at least until the 60s. So, that's a great two volume text. That's an introduction to the most important topics that an individual who wants to master life can pursue. In doing so and reading it, I believe because of the way it's structured, 
with the dialectic in mind. It will help your mind train yourself to discern and in a sense, uh, extract out of the information that surrounds the individual, uh, that objectivity that they search for so they can ground themselves and get a, a foundation of knowledge that they can build their life on. Because sensationalisms of one extreme only lead themselves back to their opposite extreme. And this has been known in Taoist ideas and, and Buddhist ideas and even in Heraclitus, as I said, he, he, he said that all pairs of opposites have a hidden unity that underlies them. So if you go subjectively into a bias, which is a survival strategy of perception, you're automatically going to obscure and live in the elusive, the illusion, you might say, instead of actually getting down to the hidden order inside the apparent chaos. And so I think that's a good two volumes to start with. If a person will devour those, it will train their mind to be able to pick out of the barrage of misinformation and opinions and polarizations of perception. I've studied 299 different disciplines. And um, as I go down there, the first thing I do is I go find the founder of that discipline because they're usually the most creative, innovative, daring individual, the unborrowed visionary that came to a new perspective. Yeah, great. And then what I do is I go there and then I follow from that point forward historically. And you can see the pairs of opinions like a, a dialectic, a syncretic involvement of these pairs of opposite opinions, criticizing and praising the opinions of the master who's initiated this. And so when you do that, you can discern uh, these two sides and pick out those, those uh, obscurities in their own perceptions and see the, the wisdom that's sitting there. And, I, and I, I think I found that in every discipline, anthropology, archeology, span chemistry, math, physics, doesn't matter. There are different views, but ultimately we're trying to balance an equation and be accountable in our perception to have an equanimity of mind. You know, I think that's the, I think that's the ultimate state of fulfillment when we finally, because if we're infatuated with an idea, we're blind to its downside. Yeah. And if we're yeah. resentful, we're blind to its upside. So we have ignorance and blindness when we have a, uh, an impulse towards or an instinct away from things. But when we're poised and present, we're powerful and we're purposeful. And that's when we've embraced both sides and we set a real objective, not a fantasy uh, of escape or, or seek. So I'm a firm believer in that. That's a good educational start. Fantastic. I, I love that. Find the founder and start from there because really, you know, often potentially messages get augmented or um, detoured along the way. We might end up with something very different to what the original founder might have wanted. Exactly. To well, you know, I, I studied uh, studying Gilbert when it came to magnetism. And I studied, you know, uh, Lewis uh, when I when I was studying some things on atoms and molecules and Democritus and I mean, I, the farther you go back, the more intriguing it becomes and it builds a foundation. And I think that that helps, helps because the more approaches or disciplines you go and explore, the more you see a universal scheme, mm. a universal design in things. And the more you get that universal design, the higher the probability of being able to discern um, the subjective biases that are being introduced by people with opinions and various schools of thought. And that will help you 
distill that wisdom through the ages uh, and put it into operation in your daily life. One of those uh, uh, attempts at distilling some of that information, The Secret, was very, very successful, the, the movie, and, and um, uh, you participated in some of that. But potentially um, in preceding The Secret, some of that was maybe out of context, you know, forgetting there was hard work and other things to, to come along. Um, could you speak to that for a moment? Because, you know, it's certainly uh, an experience that I'm having you know, employing over 100 people in my business and um, younger people now are always looking for a hack, a shortcut, a, you know, a, a, a something to, you know, to make it easier, faster, quicker. Um, you know, uh, The Secret maybe talked about attracting it and, and everything would be fine. Um, what do well, we miss? We have in our brain layers, you might say. Um, and each of these layers, as you go forward into the forebrain, you have foresight. And you go into the hindbrain, you get hindsight, literally. And foresight is anticipating the, the supportive and challenging experiences that you might face in the pursuit of some objective. And hindsight is learning from trial and error. It's the lowest heuristic that we face uh, and learning from trial and error, which is very inefficient. So when we are living in alignment and congruent with our highest values, our blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain and we set objectives. And we anticipate what could go wrong and anticipate, well, just like today, you know, perseverance made it to Mars today. I don't know if you were aware of that, but we landed on Mars today. It was the most smooth operation on the way to Mars that they planned. Everything was planned to the finest detail. Well, no, I didn't now they know. spent six years preparing for this, but we landed and we're going to now go and identify in an ancient water source, whether there's microorganisms living there or ever was and demonstrate possibly in the next few years that maybe there's life in the, in the solar system and possibly who knows beyond. So that took tremendous foresight. There's no way you could have gone there on hindsight, mm. trial and error. Yeah. You had to think of everything that could go wrong balance out the pauses with the negatives, not have a fantasy, but have a real objective. So the secret uh, was mainly for the masses and the masses love to live in the amygdala and the amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, avoid predator, seek prey and survive. And so it looks for the fantasy. It doesn't want to do the due diligence and discipline to actually meet a full objective. Now that's not because the information wasn't presented. It's just that the individual who produced it selected the information uh, according to what they thought would market, yeah. what would reach people, make see people move. Because no one that I know of that was in that movie um, fantasized about objectives only. They also put their elbow grease together and they worked. Yeah, And that wasn't emphasized as much. Mm -hmm. It was more like hold the vision and diamond rings will land on your hand. You know, open up the mailbox and there'll be a million dollar check in there. And, and even though that did give and initiate uh, people to think that they have command over their own life, it did, in some respects, create fantasies that led to upsets for them. Because the real truth is, you work. <laughs> There's work. Force dot distance, we call it. Force dot distance. You got to put some work, you know, and service to people. The more you work, the more you serve usually the luckier you get. So I'm a firm believer 
of you know having an objective, visualizing it, having an internal dialogue that's fluent and congruent with it, a structuring out a strategy that will help you get there, and updating that strategy daily as new insights come along. It's not rigid, it's flexible. As new insights come along. In 1987, I was at NASA and I was involved in the special missions project for biological research in space. I got, uh, because I knew somebody at Lockheed, they got me in through the, the red tape. And um, I didn't succeed, I failed in the simulator. And uh, so I was not able to follow instruction very well. But still, we were studying and trying to get to Mars in 1987. It was a 200 year plan. And every single day in mission control, at the front of mission control, like a tick, tickler on, a, on a, a stock report, every new discovery that would expedite the plan to get to Mars faster was coming in and they were updating the plan on a daily basis from around the world as new research was coming in. And it went from 200 years to 187 years in three months. And then it went from 187 down under the 150 mark in the last, in the next decade. It just kept getting closer and closer until, you know, now with Elon Musk here, it's really sped up. So we're probably within 25 years of Mars. Wow. So the reality is that we, if we have foresight and get mentorship and study and keep discerning with new knowledge as we go, we are more likely to achieve something profound and great in the world than if we just, you know, flippantly go after a fantasy. Mark or, or Michael Phelps, who is a great uh, 28 gold medalist, right? Or, or medals anyway, not gold medals, but medals. They were interviewing him and his coach recently. And he said that he would take every possible thing that could go wrong while he's swimming and then respond in his mind and prepare if it happens to know what it does. So you're not emotional reactive, you're proactive. And he would rehearse everything. So no matter what happens, he was prepared. And that's why he won. It wasn't a fantasy. So the secret, even though it is the idea that you have the capacity to create your destiny in your own life, that is so profound. But the idea of leaving out the pre-planning, the, the left brain, and only relying on sort of the fantasy components, I think was a little bit uh, leaving out some of the, the baby with the bathwater, as they say. The work. Um, you mentioned there before um, something about emotions. It, um, as part of this process, you know, mind thinking, forebrain, uh, left brain, right brain, where do the emotions come in? Are, are they a glitch in the, the software and, and cause the problems or, you know, because often uh, I see this in my world with investing, people can rationally think through, you know, in a calm circumstance about doing something. And then in the moment, the emotions, you know, uh, they make some decisions that are not so great. Well, emotions are animalistic. They're the passions. And it's been stated again for 3000 plus years. There's always been the, the animal passions and the angelic mission. And there's a difference. Passions means to suffer. People go around using the word, get passionate, be passionate. But the word passion comes from patio and pati and pasio, which means to suffer. Compassion means to suffer with somebody. So I don't use the word passion because anybody has passion. It doesn't take any training to have passion. It has training to be objective and have an inspired mission. 
And there's a difference between inspiration and passion. One is thought through and subjective. It has reason behind it. It's rational. And the other is emotional and irrational. Systems one thinking is emotional and systems two, you might say, is, is rational. So our amygdala is the center for irrationality. And it, it does it with subjective bias in order to survive. You have to have false positives for an animal to survive in the wild because it has to assume that it's a prey, even if it's not, and have to assume it's a predator, even if it's not, and false positive with a subjective bias in order to survive. Because if they assume it's not something when it really is, you'll go starving and you'll get eaten. So we automatically in the amygdala are designed for subjective biases and distortions and, and emotions. And emotions are designed to let us know we have an irrational perception. We have a polarized perception. When we're infatuated, we see more positive than negatives. When we're resentful, more negatives than positives. And these ratios of perception create neurochemical changes. And the, the, the amygdala has larger diameter, fi fast firing nerves designed for survival. The reason why it's there and will happen before we think is because we got to prepare for something to eat us or to get, go get food. So we are going to react, but the reaction lets us know that what our irrationalities are, it lets us know what we've got that's emotional. And now we have the systems two thinking, the forebrain to come in, the executive center with GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter and glutamate to regulate those impulses and instincts and take command and be objective and be a master of our destiny instead of a victim of our history. So we have that capacity to govern it. It's just training. And, it, and with mastery of training, you don't have to react. You cannot go to Mars and be an astronaut with emotional reactions. You, you have to be able to handle as many anticipations of what could happen and be prepared in advance. And there are thousands of preparations. The same for Bruce Lee when he was in martial arts. He would imagine closing his eyes and sleeping every possible position somebody could put their arm or leg and he would have a response. So it would be pre-planned response. So no matter what they did, his hand would go there. His leg would go there. One of the great receivers in football used to practice at night, closing their eyes, throwing footballs in their sleep, throwing footballs and catching it in the dark. So they could be prepared to be able to pick up on the subtleties to give them a competitive advantage. So yeah, we wanna use our emotions to let us know what is imbalanced so we can then return it to balance. That's what our homeostative intuition and inspirational pathway is about. Your initial upbringing, um, right at the start of your life, um, you know, in your own words, um, you you, uh, you had the dunce cap at school, you know, you had some physical challenges, those sorts of things. Um, you know, you know, how did you, you met, Paul Braggs and, and changed your life after some pretty significant, interesting journeys from sort of early ages to, you know, late 17, 18, 19, you know, talk us through that stuff for you right at the beginning. Cause you know, cause often uh, I get to chat with some amazing people like yourself um, at the, at the back end of their, their, their profession and their expertise and at the front end for you, you know, what was, you know, some of the major things uh, there that really sort of turned your life around because, you know, a lot of people in 2020 might have lost marriages, lost businesses, struggled, had some challenges like, you know, where, what could you give uh, inspiration uh, or suggestions or support for, for some of those people right now? 
If you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you, your day is designed to be filled with challenges that don't. So if you're not taking command and pursuing solving problems that serve people, you're going to have problems that you think deserve, disserve you. And that's because the universe, in a sense, loves you enough to kick your little butt to get you on to doing something that's a mission and not be trapped in passion. Because the passion is trying to avoid challenges and seek ease, trying to avoid pain and seek pleasure. You don't grow there. You only grow when you're pursuing challenges. And what's interesting is genius innovation, creativity, and original thinking emerge only when you're pursuing challenges that inspire you. So if you're not filling your day with challenges that really inspire you and living by priority, where you're really objective, where you're actually engaged in solving those problems and look forward to solving them. I love problems. You know, if we go and we solve problems, our life is enhanced. Our fulfillment in life is the conquering of problems, not avoiding them. So I had challenges as a child. I was born with my arm and leg turned in. I was born with my speaking problem, mouth movement problem. Look at what I do today. I'm on the run and I speak. <laughs> uh, I was told in first grade, I would never be able to read, never be able to write, probably not very communicate very well, probably not go very far in life or never amount to anything. Okay, well, later on, I ended up uh, reading now 30,500 books, writing probably a, you know, 300 plus books now and uh, traveling 20 million miles. I'm really into financial independence many times over. And uh, I've communicated with uh, billions of people. So the, what they've told me I was not destined to do or not able to do became the very thing I was blessed to be able to do. Mm. So I always say that the challenges you have can be the greatest blessings. And the things you think are setbacks are the source for your comebacks. It's all about your perception. If you, if it's really important to you, you will see it as feedback and a catalyst. Yeah. If it's not really important to you, you'll see it as failure. So it's, it's, it, and all of that is guided us to try to make sure we're pursuing what's really deeply meaningful to us. The mean, the thing that we're inspired and we're willing to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of. If the real purpose in life is something that you're so inspired by, that pain and pleasure are both equally respected on the on the pursuit of it. Do you, do you feel, is your feeling that above your personal meaning, there's a greater meaning for us as uh, conscious beings in the universe? It, it, is that uh, something that you, you hold a, a, a view on? Well, many philosophers and thinkers have debated and questioned whether there's meaning in the universe. As I said, yes. Albert Camus said no. Stephen Warrenberg said it's all pointless. And you got others that believe that there is a, more philosophical and more theological and more mystical. They believe that there's a underlying order in the universe. David Bohm might say that. Stephen Hawking even may do that. Um, they've now realized that there's a conservation of information. That means information that is accumulated is never lost. And we stop and think about that, that's profound. It's stored and continues. Leonard Susskind at Stanford University is now under the idea that it's stored in voxels and eventually pixels on the throat of black holes only to be returned back into new forming solar systems. So 
the information from solar systems in biological um, information that's accumulated, which is the opposite of entropy, negentropy as, as Erwin Schrodinger called it, that information is not lost, it's organized. And there seems to be a self-organizing initiation in all levels of existence. Geologically there is, sociologically inside the individual, now in solar systems, galaxies, super galaxy clusters, there's, there's the self-organizing information that's consistently stored and not lost. If that's the case, which appears to be the case, then there may actually be an involvement somehow in the universe and a transformation. We may be living in an eternally transforming universe that's constantly evolving. And now there's, there's information right now in solar systems in the Milky Way that look like they're not following the guidelines of what normal gravitational poles are. And that looks like they're having radio jets come on and off to steer them above and below by magnetic fields around the, around the Milky Way. And if this is case, if this turns out to be true, then it means that there's an intelligent movement of these stars for some neutralizing purpose and they're coordinating this magnetically across the galaxy. If this is the case, we may find out that there is as Albert Einstein said, and he said on a daily basis, it's enough for me on a daily basis to contemplate the mysteries of the intelligence that permeates the universe. Mm. So he was a panpsychic, and there's many physicists and many great philosophers that were panpsychics that believed that there was some sort of a underlying field of intelligence, a minefield that underlines the very foundation of space, time, energy, matter, and the strong nuclear, weak nuclear, electromagnetic and gravitational forces or distortions of space-time. So we may actually have an intelligence that's here. Some people may have personified it and called it God. I just got to uh, be filmed in a new movie that's coming out with Stephen Hawking. And uh, in his, his last filming before he passed, basically, and, we got to, and it's on the life and death, on eschatology of people and on the universe itself. Is it alive or is it dead? Does it really ever die? Is it continuous? And we're addressing those issues on a scale of human, is our consciousness ever really beginning or ending? Yes. And is the universe ever beginning or ending? This is an interesting uh, discussion that we'll be having in this movie. That's exciting because I, I, I was literally going to ask you that question. I had a discussion only a week ago about consciousness. Does it just pop pop up and it's in the brain and then when you're dead, it's gone? Or is it is our brain an antenna streaming consciousness from somewhere else? And when you're saying maybe that information or knowledge is stored in the universe and we get to sort of tune into it. Uh, I like that. It, oh. It's a romantic notion for me. I like it, but I don't know, you know? You know, Immanuel Kant, the, the German philosopher who lived in his little university place most of his life, believed that there was an imminent mind and a transcendent mind. So he believed that the imminent mind um, was the place of subjective bias and animal behavior, and it was reflexive. And the transcendent mind was an angelic behavior, which was a messenger of light, an inspired messenger part of us that could transcend the dialectic opinions and actually get a glimpse of the truth. Now, many doubted that it was ever possible. Uh, Pyron and, and Bison, they, they, Bryson, they, they basically believed, no, you can only have opinion. But some believed in the transcendental. William James believed in it. He called it the higher mind. It's been discussed for centuries. I've developed it in my breakthrough experience. I found a way of accessing it. I've been working on trying to figure that out since I was 18, I found a way. Now this transcendent mind uh, 
seems to be able to access information that is not evoked by sensory input only. Now we could say that there's receptivity by our senses. There's perceptivity by the combination of those with the associative areas of the brain from previous perceptions. Then there's combinations of those into conceptions and apperceptions. But then there's also things that we, we have a hard time comprehending how they could know. I saw 11 year old girl uh, develop a palsy in her left hand when she was actually meeting a woman whose mother died who had a palsy in the left hand and said things that the mother said to the daughter all her life and, and said things like that. We captured this on film and it was just amazing. And she got really present with each other, these people. And we, she accessed this transcendental state. So we don't know really the boundaries of that. Scientists today, there's neuroscientists that are trying to believe that it, the, 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 the mind doesn't exist. It's just neurochemistry and neuromolecules and things. But there's some aspects of the brain that's, that's I think, a little bit more transcendent than just a few molecules. And I do believe that there's a field. And I just finished a text that I wrote last year on the, the consciousness, you might say, of the sun and how charged particles of light, as Freeman Dyson at the Institute of Advanced Studies claimed, is what we store information in. And we know that in, in physics. We know that in, in uh, telecommunications. But it may actually be occurring, and we may be part of that. And our glial cells in our brain may be part of the mediators of this antenna, you might say. So there's more to be learned. I think we have, we're, we're in our infancy of really what consciousness is. The right. models, I've, I've been studying these models for 48 years, and we're still in infancy. Mind-blowing and, and exciting at the same time. It's um, you, you mentioned the breakthrough experience. I, myself and my wife uh, attended it many years ago, and we had a great time. Uh, amazing process to go through is that some of some of the stuff that you go through in the breakthrough experience with you know participants and people is so maybe even that's a good place for some people to you know experience some of these things as well yeah in the breakthrough experience i'm I, i'm intending to help people uh transcend their subconsciously stored baggage that's causing these emotional reactions and increasing the speed in which they see both sides of an event so they can be poised and present and purposeful and patient and productive and prioritized and live fully, mindfully. And so the, 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 the program, which I've done 1,118 times, um, is designed to assist people in mastering their life. I've been working on the, you might say, the ingredients of that program since I was 18. I'm 60, almost 66, going on 67 now. So I've been working on it a long time. And I love presenting it. I'm getting ready to do it in, in Australia, actually, this week. And then also again in May, I think. But I, I do everything I can to help people master lives. I want people to master all seven areas. I want them to wake up their genius, to create a service that they absolutely can't wait to get up in the morning and be of service to people because there's a fulfillment from serving people. Yes. I want them to be able to build wealth in their life so they're not a slave to money all their life. I want them to be able to have the ability to communicate what they love in terms of what other people love so they can have love and intimacy and reflection. I want them to be able to wake up their natural born leader, which I believe everybody has in their own field and their own value structure, and also vitalize themselves because a lot of the symptoms of our body are feedback mechanisms to let us know where, when we're inauthentic to get us back to being authentic, mm. where we're really empowered. And then I want them to be inspired. So I'm the breakthrough experience is to help people empower all seven areas of life, not to live in the shadows of people, but to stand on the shoulders of giants 
and do something extraordinary on the planet that's in their heart that they want to contribute on the planet. And to get them past the comparison of themselves to others and only compare their own daily actions to their own dreams. I love it. I, I highly recommend for those listeners of the Wealth Faculty listening in um, online in May, uh, drdmartini.com forward slash events. Um, track it down, gang. Highly recommended from my neck of the woods. Um, fantastic experience. Well, folks, we are only halfway through this conversation with Dr. D. Martini. I'm absolutely loving it. I hope you are too. Certainly stretching my mind and my capacity to think uh, and understand some of these concepts. He's one of my all-time favorite conversations so far. I think he's in the top three easily in my conversations on the Wealth Faculty Podcast uh, to date. So really enjoying it. Hope you are too. Next week, we're going to change gears. This week, we've been uh, focusing on the past and understanding our behavior and, and emotions and mental attitude towards those things. And we're going to change gears to look at the future, creating some wealth, creating the life that you want to live and uh, certainly understanding how to do that in a very practical but uh, you know powerful way. Dr. Martini is going to share some more wisdom with us. Uh, I look forward to uh, you joining me again for part two of this conversation on the Wealth Faculty with Dr. Martini. Until then, folks, take care and bye for now.